let's continue. We are up to page 415. And last night, what we finished with is the specific places where it's possible for one to attain prophetic visions. And we said that once we once we have conquered the land of Israel, then for, at that point on, the, the visions would be in, inside of those lands of Israel. These prophetic experiences cannot be comprehended with logic. The Greek philosophers therefore dismiss them because logic rejects any phenomenon the like of which has never before been seen. The prophets, on the other hand, embrace the prophetic experience because they cannot deny what they have been privileged to see with their spiritual eye. There are whole communities of prophets living during different times in history. So it is implausible to suggest that they conspire to lie about prophecy. This is a similar idea, like on a little bit of a, a micro scale of what we talked about earlier in terms of how the, the revelation that the Jewish people have, which is a revelation to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all at once, is a completely grander scale. And not just grander, just a completely different scale than any other story of divine revelation that occurs to one individual at a time. And the reason is because one individual is easy to falsify. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, is more difficult to falsify. So too when it comes to prophets. So all these prophets are all having the same experience, perhaps, right? And it's difficult to say that all of these people in all the different time periods, they all came up with a similar lie, right? the big lie that they were doing for power purposes. Moreover, the sages living in their times who met them, found them to be authentic and bore witness to their prophecies. If the Greek philosophers had seen the prophet's prophecy and their amazing qualities, they certainly would have validated them as well and would have sought ways using logical methods for man to reach that level. Right? Interestingly enough, the Rambam kind of does take this approach. The Rambam famously does take an approach of where he tries to quantify the behavior and the characteristics that would be necessary for someone to actually experience prophecy on a true, a true prophecy <coughs> level. That being said, the Rambam, of course, makes it clear that there is still a point at which you could do everything the right way and you might not still be worthy of prophecy. So it's not a guarantee. Some of the Greek philosophers actually did this. Interesting. They say on the bottom, there's a legend that Plato and Yermio met in Egypt after the temple was destroyed. This is also recorded in Torah Sa'ila by the Ramah, Ramosha Isserlis. Ramosha Isserlis, by the way, was a uh, great, great rabbi. He's better known for having written the commentary of the Ashkenazi Jewry, like the, the, uh, the, the, the Bible, sort of, the Halachic Bible. In other words, how we are supposed to live our lives as Ashkenazi Jewry is completely based on how the Ramah laid it down in the 1500s. He was from um, Krakow. He also wrote about philosophy. He wrote about philosophy, he wrote about Kabbalah. He was a, a very um, well-rounded individual, let's say. So here's this legend. And he writes that Plato eventually assented to Yermio's wisdom and prophecy. So that would be 2,500 years ago, would be when Yermio went down to Egypt. Yeah, 2,500 years ago. Is that, does that line up in, in terms of Plato? Is that around when Plato was, around 2,500 years ago? Anybody remember? Anybody remembers? Okay. By the way, it doesn't make a difference. Now, we can be certain that philosophers of the other religions mentioned at the beginning of the book did so as well. In conclusion, then, now we go back to the names of Hashem. The name Adonai, spelled as Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, similarly refers in the figurative sense to a tangible divinity. It is as if one is addressing it as my master, Adoni. <laughs> and that's why we use a phrase of with the, uh, the personal at the end, right? The personal about how um, it's about Adonai, my master, because that's what we're really referring to. It's a tangible divinity. It's something that we can almost point to as being my master. As to the concept of angel, Malach of God, 
The term malach is synonymous with, with messenger. Some angels are created out of the ethereal elements for finite periods, while other angels exist eternally. Perhaps these eternal angels are the same spiritual entities discussed by the philosophers. We have no reason to reject their doctrine or to accept it. There is a question, however, as to the types of visions which Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel saw, whether they were images created for a specific temporary purpose or whether they were perpetual spiritual entities. As to the term glory, kavod, of God, the more literal meaning refers to the ethereal entity controlled by God's will to appear in an image, representing how God wishes to appear to the prophet. The broader meaning includes the angels and spiritual vessels, such as the throne, the chariot, the firmament, the wheels, the wheel works, and other entities which exist eternally. Right. So when we use these phrases of chariots and angels and, and wheels and so on, we're, we're not really trying to describe an, an actual physical entity because, of course, God is not physical at all. And it's actually the way in which they were seeing something that was serving God. Right. But it's not that the wheels actually served the purpose that they went around or something like that. These are thus called glory of God, just as the king's vessels are called his glory, as in, and the vessels before them. Perhaps this is what Moshe was referring to when he said, please show me your glory, to which God acquiesced, provided that Moshe would not look at his face, which no mortal is able to do. It was this glory to which God referred when he said, you will see my back, right? There's the famous incident, glorious incident, when Moshe realizes that Hashem is disposed to treat the Jews favorably and will indeed forgive them for their awful sin of the golden calf. And Moshe says, you know, once I'm in it, once I'm in it and God is now disposed favorably, let me go, let me go whole hog. Uh, probably not the best, best term to use. And he said, can you please show me your face? To which God said, I cannot show you your face literally, but I will show you my back. So some sort of a glory of Hashem, some sort of a messenger of Hashem, a high level divinity that Hashem has given power to as a messenger, but not God himself. This glory has various components, some of which can be perceived by prophetic vision. The lowest level can be perceived even by ordinary man. The cloud and the consuming fire are two which were commonly seen, right? So in other words, when the Jews are traveling through the desert, we saw a cloud at all times. We saw a consuming fire at all times. How are we able to see that? Because that was something that we had the capacity to see. But the glory gradually ascends in its ethereality, I guess, until it reaches a level which no prophet can perceive. And if a prophet attempts to perceive that higher level, his soul will depart from him, right? And this is the famous idea, oh, they say that on the bottom. And the famous story that Talmud tells us about four individuals, four great, great rabbis who entered into a higher level of experiencing God coming from a, not, not a prophetic sense, but rather coming from a logical sense and abstract thought. They entered into a higher level of plane of existence, a level in which they can experience God. And only one of them came out completely unscathed, and that would be Rabbi Akiva. The other ones came out and they were either died on the spot because they weren't able to live in a physical plane anymore. They had to go straight to a spiritual plane right then. That was one. Another one went off of the derach, so to speak. He left behind Judaism. For whatever reason, there was some sort of a, of a contradiction in his perception. He left Judaism behind. And the third came out mentally adult. Rabbi Akiva came out completely whole and sane. We find this phenomenon with regular vision as well. Someone with poor vision will be able to see only in the diminished light of twilight, just like a bat. And someone who has bleary-eyed and has even weaker vision will only be able to see in the shadows. On the other hand, someone whose vision is strong can see sunlight. But no one can look directly into the sun while it's shining. 
and one who strains to do so will go blind. I'm not sure what, what that means. I, 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 he, he means something, but I'm not sure what, because that, I would think that would be the opposite. This then is the meaning of the terms glory of God, kingship of God, and divine presence of God as they are commonly found in the Torah. But sometimes these terms are used to describe the laws of nature, as in the whole universe is filled with his glory. This is something that we say often in, in prayer, right? And this is, um, you know, kavod Hashem, you know, malokal aras kavodo, right? The, the entire world is full of Hashem's glory, right? And we say, um, and his kingship rules over all. In reality, though, the, the glory and kingship can be witnessed only by God's chosen elite and prophetic class who demonstrate through their prophecies to the heretic that God's rulership and kingship are extant and that he is cognizant of the various components of his creation. At such time when the whole world will be shown this glory, it shall genuinely be declared that God is king, the glory of God shall be revealed, God will rule forever, say to Zion, your king rules, and God's glory shines upon you. So when we use the term glory, it refers to a manifestation of Hashem in this world. It refers to something that we can actually tangibly kind of relate to on a more more a lower level, something that we actually can relate to and experience. That being said, of course, the way in which we relate to that is going to be very much dependent on what level we have achieved. So for someone who reaches a very high level, the glory of God is not even going to be nature because they actually perceive a manifestation of God on a higher level. But for those of us who exist on lower levels and the, even your average person traveling through the desert was able to see the glory of God in terms of the cloud of glory, in terms of the fire that went during, during the night, right? They were able to see that. In terms of the laws of nature, that's what we are down to, right? We can see the glory of God when we look at the incredible, incredible laws of nature, the, the systems, both in terms of a, on a micro scale, when you look at, you know, some of the incredible systems that are, are behind everything that we don't even recognize until we delve deeper into. And of course, also in looking at the things that are just um, so awe-inspiring, sites that are so awe-inspiring that we're just, we're just blown away. And that itself, to some extent, is a glory of God, because that too is a creation of God, which is a extension of what godliness is. So for those of us who are on a lower level, we can still appreciate the glory of God by looking at some of these awesome things. Maybe if we were at a higher level, we would have to go up another notch before we would perceive it as being the glory of God as opposed to a lower, a lower level, lower manifestation of God. Okay.